All right, hey, I was talking to a friend this week, and my friend was saying that they have a son who is preparing for a bodybuilding competition. You know, I thought, if I wasn't a pastor, I might have been a bodybuilder. What are you laughing at? It's not a joke. This is serious. The problem is, though, I hate going to the gym, and I love jelly bellies, and I love banana cream pie, and I love uh, red meat. Like, I just love it all, and that's been one of those things that I've had to fight against to me actually being in shape. But one of the funniest things, maybe if you're one of those people that go to the gym, one of the funniest things about going to the gym is every gym has at least one of those guys. You know the guy I'm talking about. The guy who only focuses on his upper body, right? This is a guy that's got the six-pack. He's got the biceps. The shoulders are huge. But then you look down at the rest of him, and he's got bird legs, right? Kind of like this guy up here. There's a picture of that. It's like... If the wind blows, he's so lopsided, he's going to fall right over, right? You've seen that guy? Sometimes our faith can be a little bit lopsided. Where sometimes there are parts of God and parts of our faith that we prioritize over another thing. So we're strong in one and, and lacking in another. So maybe, maybe, for example, we might be strong in the Word of God, but then we are lacking in the Holy Spirit. Or maybe we're strong in the Holy Spirit, but then we're lacking in sharing our faith, where we're a little bit lopsided in our faith. We see this often with these ideas of, of truth and grace, where Jesus held these things together equally, truth and grace. But oftentimes, we lean towards one another. So maybe we lean towards this idea of grace, where, hey, we're forgiven. It doesn't matter what we do. God's a God of love. On the other side, sometimes we lean more towards truth where it's all about living a godly life. And the danger is, when we emphasize one of these more than the other, we become lopsided in our view of who God is. We don't have a full grasp of who He is. In fact, you can see this at play in sometimes how we tell stories from the Bible. So, for example, the story of Noah, Noah's Ark. Now, Noah's Ark, if you were to do a survey across the United States and ask people, hey, what are... What's a Bible story you know? One of the top three that almost everybody in America would be able to point to is they'd be able to say, oh, we know the story of Noah's Ark. We're familiar with that story. I mean, you see pictures of Noah's Ark print, uh, 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 in murals through nurseries all across uh, our, our, our country. You see it all over the place. And we love the story of Noah's Ark. It's so cute, right? I mean, you've got, you've got the rainbow where God promises all this good stuff. I won't ever destroy the earth again. And then you see the little animals coming in, and they're so cute. You know, you got the little kangaroos and the hippos coming two by two. We love that story. It's so cute. But that's only one side of the story. The other side of the story is Noah's Ark really isn't a kid's story at all. It's a story about God's judgment, where God sends a global flood to literally kill everything that's left on the face of the earth. So we don't want to lean one way or another. We want to make sure we're looking at the story to see this full reality of who God is. And in the story of Noah's Ark, we see God's character, that he is a God of love and grace and judgment, and you see all of these things on display through the story of Noah's Ark, and it gives us a complete and balanced view of who God is. Here at Restoration, uh, one of the things we say about us is we are a Bible people. 
uh, we take the Bible seriously. And so we've decided for the next couple of uh, two, three months, we're going to be in a series that we're calling The Story. Well, we're looking at the Bible from the very beginning in the book of Genesis to the very end in the book of Revelation. And we're going to see how, how every story, every, every character, every theme, every event points us to not, about, not, not a story about us. It points us to the story of Jesus. It points us to what Jesus has done for us. The Bible is one big story, always pointing us to Jesus. We saw a couple weeks ago that the story of creation, we saw Jesus in the middle of it. Jesus was there at creation. Last week, we saw the fall of man, where, where sin entered the world. And we saw that Jesus was a promised redeemer who was going to come and fix what had gone wrong in our hearts and in the world. And today, we get to look at the story of Noah's Ark. Now, oftentimes when we approach a text like this, we want to ask a bunch of questions. Our curiosity gets the best of us, right? So we hear that there is a flood that covered all the earth. And the question then becomes, well, was it a flood that covered like literally the entire earth? Or was it maybe just like the known world at that time? Maybe it was just parts of the world? Like, like how much water actually flooded the earth? And then we ask questions like, well, how did, how did he get all the animals in the ark? And then, and then we get questions like this. We get really, uh, really profound questions. Like, how much poop do those animals produce in a single day? And who had the job of scooping all of that? And then we get maybe the most important question of all. Noah, a spirit-filled man, a God-fearing man. Why on earth didn't he screen the two cats from getting on the, on the ark? I mean, he did it with the unicorns. Why didn't he screen the cats from getting on the ark? These are good questions. But the problem is, is when we, when we focus just on our curiosity, sometimes we can miss the focus of the text. Similar to the creation story, where we don't have all the answers that we want. We want to know how all these things played out, but that's not the point that God gave us a story. We miss a point that God intended when we only focus on our curiosity. Because this story teaches us that God is a just God who judges and punishes sin. But the good news is even though he's a just God who punishes sin, we also see God's grace. And it is, God's grace is available to all of us, and we see God's grace shine brightest when we can grasp the reality of sin and its consequences. So the story of Noah's Ark, we're going to look at four observations this morning. I know you're saying there's probably a uh, hundred observations we can point out, but uh, we want to honor your time and try and be out of here before dinner time. So we're going to give four observations. Number one, we will see that wickedness devastates the heart of God. Human wickedness devastates the heart of God. Look at Genesis chapter 6, starting in verse 5. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great over all the earth, and every intention and thought of their heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he made man on earth, and it grieved his heart. You see, sometimes when we read stories of God's judgment, sometimes they bother us. Like, we don't like this idea of God judging, but the reality is, uh, how much it bothers us is not nearly as much as how sin bothers God. In fact, you saw that in verse 6. You can underline this if you're one of those people that likes to write in your Bible. In verse 6, it says that it grieved his heart. This word grieved is the same word that the prophet Isaiah used uh, in his book to describe a young woman who's been deserted by her husband, right? So maybe, maybe picture this. Picture a, a young bride on the altar, 
who's so excited for the future, who's dreaming of of anticipation and of excitement of what their life is going to hold, dreaming of having little Jonases and all that their life's going to be, only to have her guy run off with a maid of honor, right? That woman, that young bride would be hollow, would have this sick feeling inside of her. Listen, Genesis is saying that is how God feels about our sin. It leaves him with that sick and empty feeling. See, we described sin last week. We described sin as a disease that has consumed the entire human race. All of us have this disease of sin. And between, between where we were at last week of Adam and, and to Noah, we've gone through 1,600 years. It's been a lot of years. And here's, here's how the author Moses describes what has happened. It said in verse 5, that man's thoughts were continually evil. Verse 11 said the earth was filled with violence. Verse 12 says the earth was corrupt. You see, from, from Genesis chapter 4 to Genesis chapter 6, humanity just got worse and worse and worse. We were full of, of hatred and abuse and dishonesty and violence. Human life was cheap. Somebody makes you mad, just, just take them out. Just be a mob guy and, and, and bury him. There was uh, serial perversion that ruled, sexual perversion. It was total depravity. And this is where what had happened in this period of time. And God's looking over all of this, and God's saying, you know, this is not the way it intended to be. Remember, God created mankind to be in his own image. Mankind, humanity, we were the glory of God's creation. We were designed to have a relationship with him and a relationship with others. We were to be stewards over God's creation to show the glory of God to the people around us. And what does sin do? Sin destroyed the purpose for which we were created. Sin separated us from our relationship with him. Sin causes us to do evil to one another, destroying our relationships with one another. Sin caused us, rather than enjoying God's creation, that points to creator, Sin causes us to destroy his creation, to deny our creator, to live as if we are oblivious to the glory that, that, that God has given us in his world. Sin has destroyed all of this. And very simply, Moses says this grieved the heart of God. It devastates his heart because of our sin. So number one, number one this morning for us, is that the wickedness devastates the heart of God. Number two, he's going to tell us that God's patience will eventually come to an end. And it's going to show us that sin will be judged. In fact, we're going to look at some verses here that are, are not comforting. They're not happy. They're not fun to read. It says in Genesis 6, verse 7, The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land, the man and the animals and the creeping things and the birds of the heaven, for I am sorry that I have made them. Verse 13. It says, God told Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. I will destroy them with the earth. Verse 17. God says, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth and destroy all flesh. Everything on the earth shall die. Those are some hard, dark verses. And when we read God's judgment, when we read things like this, immediately we begin to think, well, well, that doesn't sound very loving. 
That doesn't, sound like, that doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound like a gracious God. And this is where our lopsided view of God comes into play and gets us into trouble. Because we like that idea of a good God. We like that idea of a good God who gives us good things, who pampers us, who wants us to be healthy and wealthy and, and, and happy. We like a God that we think his purpose is our happiness. We like that kind of a God. We, we don't like that idea of, uh, of God judging people. We don't like that idea of God punishing sinners. No, we like a God of love and grace. That's easy. But here's the thing. God is not our creation. We don't get to pick and choose what is true about God. We don't get to pick and choose what we like about God and what we don't. Because he is God, not us. He is God, not us. And so he is a loving God, but he's also a righteous and a just God. And his primary motivation is not our happiness. In fact, in Psalm 98, Psalm 98, it says this, righteousness and justice are the foundation of God's throne. Righteousness and justice are his foundation of his throne. Righteous means, righteousness means that he is a holy God, that our righteousness and how we live, it matters. It says he is a just God, which means he is just in his treatment of us. He is fair in his reactions. In fact, one of the things I want you to grasp is as I read the first several chapters of the book of, of Genesis, I think it is setting a stage for the rest of Scripture. And I think you need to understand that as we read Genesis and we read these things, it is really setting a stage for us to understand the rest of Scripture. Because in the beginning, we saw that God created mankind. They're special. They're made in his image. And then sin enters the world and brings chaos to what God never intended. We see this mess of the world we live in as a result of sin. And so then in Genesis chapter 6, we see the flood, which is simply, we see how sin has consumed humanity. And there are devastating consequences to sin. I think this is what the flood is meant to teach us. That when we have sin ruling our day, ruling our lives, there are devastating consequences. In fact, it says in Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. Listen, there are devastating consequences to our sin. God is a just God. He will judge sin. He will judge sin fairly. We may not like it, and it may not make us feel good, but we've got to grasp the reality of sin and its effect on God, and how God deals with sin. But while we can look and see that God is a God of, of righteousness and justice, there's still more to it. He still is a God of love. And in the middle of the story of judgment upon the earth, we see God's favor and grace. Number three, we're going to find God's favor and grace. Genesis 6, verse 8, it says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. One of the things I always do when I read scripture is I want to ask questions. Well, wh why does it say that? Was there something special about Noah? What made Noah so special to find God's favor and grace? Let me tell you a secret. There's nothing special about him. I know you say, well, well that's not what scripture says. It says in verse 9 that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Clearly, he's a really good person. Clearly, Noah is better than most of us, which is why uh, God's favor was on him. Let me tell you what, that does not mean that Noah wasn't a sinner. 
Noah was a part of humanity just like you and I, and he had been infected by the disease of sin just like you and I. And see, again, if you're one of those people that likes to write in your Bible, I wrote in my Bible next to verse 9, Hebrews 11, verse 7. Because Hebrews 11, verse 7 talks about Noah, and it says, By faith, Noah, when he was warned by God, out of reverent fear, he constructed an ark to save his household. By this, he became an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. How does his righteousness come? Not because he was great. Not because he was holy. Not because he was sinless. No, his righteousness came simply by faith. By faith, he received God's offer of salvation. Listen, when we read in Scripture, this is always, this is always how the people of God become righteousness, how we become righteous. In that God grants us a gift to those who believe, who respond by faith, who surrender to him. He grants us this gift of righteousness, not that we earn of ourselves, because none of us could achieve that. Simply, it is a gift that he gives to us because we've placed our faith and we've believed in him. In fact, this is all God asks of us. He doesn't ask us to jump through hoops, to, to, to be some great person. He simply asks us to give an unqualified and unconditional yes and surrender to him. And so when we read that Noah was a righteous man, it was simply that he was righteous by faith. He put his faith in God. So we see God's favor, God's grace on Noah. We also see God's favor and grace further where God instructs Noah to build an ark. And this ark was going to be a salvation for him and his family. In fact, you think about this ark. This is probably one of the greatest examples of faith in the entire Bible, right? I mean, Noah, if you understand, Noah lived in a desert, much like our valley. He lived in a desert. And here he is starting to build an ark. He'd never been on a boat. He never built an boat. Nobody had seen anything like this. Can you imagine all the ridicule and the mocking that people were giving him? You're going to build a boat in the middle of a desert? It took, it took Noah over 100 years to build this thing. Could you imagine how many people just sat and laughed and said, what the heck are you even doing? But Noah endured. Because that's what genuine faith does. Genuine faith doesn't just talk the talk. Genuine faith doesn't just show up on Sunday and, and sing some songs and praise the Lord. No, genuine faith is evidenced through our dedication and through our faithfulness in everyday life. And Noah showed that as he continued to build the ark. And you see God's favor and grace one more time in this text. See, 2 Peter chapter 3, it calls Noah a, a preacher of righteousness. Because those hundred years, hundred plus years while Noah is building the ark, he also had this opportunity to preach to the world around him, to preach to people. To say, hey, listen, people, listen. God is coming to judge sin. The rain's going to come. The, the earth's going to be destroyed. Place your faith in him and be saved. A hundred years Noah spent preaching that message. And how many people believed in him? How many people responded to that message? Well, only Noah and his family were saved. So the assumption is only Noah and his family believe that message of God's judgment and place their faith in him. We know, if you're familiar, you know how the story goes. That the day came and God brought all the animals two by two and puts them on the boat. He has Noah gather all the supplies they're going to need. And in 
Genesis 7, 16, it says, the Lord shut the door and shut him in. The story says that the, the fountains above and the fountains below, they opened, and for 40 days and 40 nights, there was torrential rains, there was some sort of underground flood or tsunami or something, and so much water that the highest known mountain was covered by more than 45 feet of water. That flood remained on the earth for more than five months. And scripture says that every living thing on the earth drowned. Is that the mural that we have in our Sunday school classrooms? Where only Noah and his sons and their wives were saved. And his wife, Joan of Ark. See what we did there? The fourth thing that we're going to see in this passage, number four, is I want you to see the hope of Jesus. Because this story points, points to that hope. After the flood, Genesis 8, 21, it says, God says, I will never curse the ground again because of man, because the attention of man's heart is evil from youth. Is that what you expect to read? Like, like as I read this story of God destroying the earth, I expect him to say, I'm not going to just destroy the earth again because man's going to try really hard not to be as sinful. They're going to be better. But that's not what it says. God knew man would still be evil. He knew we would still be wicked. And so he promises not to destroy the earth again, but to pursue a different solution. And the question is, well, well, how did God know that man was still going to be evil? I mean, wouldn't, Noah, wouldn't he want to be a better person because of what he just witnessed? Listen, if you read the end of the story, the end of the story, Genesis chapter 9, verse 21, it says that Noah planted a vineyard. And he started drinking up the wine, and he got drunk, and is wandering around the, uh, the village naked. Like, that's what the scripture says. Is that the story in the Precious Moments Bible? I, don't, I didn't see that part of the story. It wasn't there. You know why God included that? I don't think God included that tidbit about Noah because he wanted to embarrass Noah. I think God included that to teach us that virus, that sin virus, is still here. That sin virus is still here, pointing to some sort of new kind of salvation that's going to be needed for humanity. In fact, you see it in verse, chapter 9, verse 13. Chapter 9, verse 13, God says, I will set my bow in the clouds, and it is a sign of the covenant between me and you. What is the bow we're talking about? The rainbow. It's the rainbow. But here's the thing. In the original language, that word bow is not the same word for rainbow. It actually is a word for uh, a battle bow. Think about a bow and arrow. Think about what that's going to do. And so the rainbow, you see the rainbow is shaped kind of like a bow, right? And so what the rainbow shows is that God has laid down his war bow. He's laid down his war bow in the heavens. In other words, God is saying, I'm going to accomplish an ultimate salvation, not by shooting arrows of my wrath to men again. He's not going to destroy the earth on one fell swoop like he did in the flood. He's laying down the war boat, saying, I'm not going to do that again. In fact, this analogy goes a little bit further. Because when you think about the rainbow, where is the rainbow pointed? The rainbow pointed back up into heaven. 
See, there's going to come a day where God is going to wipe evil from the earth by taking the arrows of his wrath upon himself. See, this is the hope of Jesus, pointing us back to God said, hey, this didn't work. Me destroying the earth, it doesn't solve the sin problem. So what he's going to do, he's going to take that wrath and put it on Jesus to once and for all deal with what's gone wrong in our world. In fact, this is a story of Noah's Ark. This is a message, this is a summary that I want us to understand. Is that our loving and merciful God, he is a loving and merciful God, but he will bring judgment. He will bring judgment on sinners. He will bring judgment on sin, on those who oppose him. Yet out of his grace and love for us, he provides a way for the righteous by faith to escape. Isn't that good news? And we can look and see God takes sin seriously. But because he loves us, he provides a way of escape. Come to this point, we're like, all right, you just told me this terrible story. Totally changed my frame of Noah's Ark. I can't picture it in the nursery anymore. What do I do with this now? I got two simple takeaways for us this morning. Two ways to apply this message. Number one, we need a bold and courageous faith like Noah. See, Noah's life stands out because of the sharp contrast to the culture around him. Everybody around him is pursuing evil continually, while Noah pursued God. Noah bloomed like a rose in the midst of rottenness. He was a, a bright light in the midst of darkness and despair. See, a bold and courageous faith is simply a a faith that lives and acts out their faith. Means that we don't just take our faith and make it be something we do on Sunday mornings. Our faith isn't just something to do when we're gathered with other believers and, and with the church. Our faith is something that we actually have to live out Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday. We live it out in our marriage when things get hard. We live it out in our workplace when people wrong us. We live it out in our, in our driving and how we drive down the road when people cut us off. That is a bold and courageous faith that we live out what we claim to believe. You see, one of the things I love about Noah is, is oftentimes you see the New Testament writers comparing the time of Noah to our day and age right now. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 24, he said, as we're in the days of Noah, so the days will be at the coming of the Son of Man, where everybody's going to be eating and drinking and living large, unaware until the flood comes and sweeps them away. I think there's this reality that we are living in similar times to the way that Noah lived, where the culture is continually evil, where there is hatred and violence and bigotry and sexual idolatry and all these things happening all around us. In fact, I was thinking about the past two plus years and all that we've been through. Isn't it a little bit hard not to grow a little cynical? Like how many of you have noticed you're a little more cynical than you were a couple years ago before the pandemic and all the political stuff? See, it's interesting because now I listen and everybody is complaining about how bad things are. Everybody's complaining about how bad they are. They're saying evil has only gotten worse. And we're always pointing to it being someone else's fault. You know, our world does not need, our world is bound for judgment. Our world does not need more cynics. 
Our world doesn't need more complainers. Our world doesn't need more negative Nancys. Our world needs more Noahs, people that have this bold and courageous faith. Our world needs people that are willing to stand up and believe God and believe his word. Our world needs people who are willing to build an ark when it looks impossible. Our world needs people willing to to hate their sin and repent and continually turn towards God. Our world needs people willing to endure criticism and mocking of those who don't know him because they're living differently than them. Our world needs people willing to point others to freedom and righteousness in Christ because of what he's done for us. And here we are as a church, what are we doing? We're complaining. We're cynical. We're complaining about politics. Listen, that's how the world needs from us. The world is bound for judgment. What they need is us to have a bold and courageous faith to say, I believe these things. I believe these things. I'm living it out. They're not just something I ascribe to on Sunday morning, but I'm holding these truths and I'm believing on them and I'm believing the promises. And I'm going to live it out even when it's hard. And when someone slaps me across the face, guess what I'm going to do? I'm not going to slap them back. I'm going to turn the other cheek as well. And we take these things that we claim to believe in and we live them out. Listen, that's what our world needs today because our world is bound for judgment. We need Noah's to stand on biblical values, to wrestle with the tension of truth and grace. I can't promise you that if we do this, we'll change the world. Because in fact, when I look at Noah, Noah's faith didn't quite change the world. But you know what Noah did? I want you to check this out. See, one of the questions people say is, they say, Pastor, how do I guarantee my kids will grow up to love the Lord? How do I, how do I set an environment? I think about Jonas this morning for Kevin and Gretchen. How do I create an environment that they would come to know Jesus? See, Noah's faith, his bold, courageous faith, it was enough to inspire his wife and his kids to follow his example. I don't know how to change the world, but I'll tell you what, as parents, as grandparents, as husbands, as wives, as friends, when we live out this bold and courageous faith, man, it does something to the people around us. When they see our consistency, when they see us living it out by faith, our righteousness in him, it might just be enough to inspire those around us to believe in what we believe in. Number one, we need a bold and courageous faith. And number two, we need to put our hope in Jesus. See, Noah put his hope in Jesus, and he was spared from the penalty of sin, while the rest of the world suffered its consequences. We need to put our hope in Jesus. See, Noah... I want you to see the similarities between Noah and Jesus. Noah, he obeyed God. He built an ark that was a salvation for those who placed their faith and surrendered to him. And that ark, it shielded them from the storm of God's wrath. It lifted them above the waters of judgment. Jesus made an ark, but it wasn't an ark made of gopher wood. Jesus' ark was made of his own torn flesh. And through Jesus... We can be lifted above the waters of judgment. 
because Jesus was submerged into them for us. But unlike Noah, who walked out of the ark and still had a dark, sinful heart, when we place our faith in Jesus and experience his salvation, Scripture says that we become a a new creation, that we become formed in his image and likeness, reflecting his glorious love to the world around us. Yeah, we need to put our hope in him. In fact, Peter, referencing Noah, said in in 2 Peter, he said, God is not slow to return to fix all things that have gone wrong. He is patient, wishing that none of us would perish. See, Jesus is coming, and he will deal with sin once and for all. And some of us will be under that judgment if we do not put our hope in him. And today is our chance. Today is your chance to repent, to get right with God. I'll tell you what, I can't promise that all your problems in your life are going to be fixed, but I can promise you this, that when you put your hope in him, that you don't don't go through it alone, that you have God with you in every moment to carry you through the hard times, to give you a hope and a future. That is the story of Noah's Ark. And that's what I invite you to today. That we would be a people that have a bold and courageous faith. And that today you would take the opportunity to repent and put your hope in Jesus so you could experience his salvation. Let's pray.